welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we read about the hungriest games so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. Joining us to discuss this Hunger Games prequel is Mackenzie Lee, author, bookseller, and unexpected stan of this book. Yay. Hi, Mackenzie. Welcome, welcome back to the podcast. I am so happy to be here with you. Did you like this more or less than the horny Aaron Burr erotica? That- <laughs> so <laughs> this is this is now my third third appearance on the the podcast. Uh, the first two were unhinged. Like in no world did any of us expect them to be readable, let alone like something we would actually enjoy. The first one I did was the historical Aaron Burr erotica, which I had totally blocked from my mind until. Uh, I, until my mom asked, I was talking to my mom about doing this podcast, and she's like, "What else did you read for them?" And I was like, "Oh, oh, I read like I'd totally forgotten it." And then we read Jay Manuel's book from America's Next Top Model, which <laughs> is like my party trick is being able to tell people about that book and the fact that it's a real book that exists. Uh, <laughs> they were both so insane and unhinged. And then going in, when you asked me to come do this one, I was like, okay, so this is going to be more of the typical worst bestsellers fair where it is those two we read kind of sillily and ironically. And I was like, this is more the like, it's going to actually be a a bestselling novel that I won't enjoy and I can come on and snark. Uh, So I was fully prepared to grit my teeth and and go through this this book. Um, And I am obsessed with this book. I yes. love this book. I'm not going to be, a, it's not going to be fun because I'm not, I know your best episodes are when you like snarky, but I'm, I have very little snark about this book. I loved it. You know, we have heard that uh, our core listeners like it when we have a good time. So. Okay, fuck good. The, fuck the haters. Embrace <laughs> the lovers. Because I definitely will hear, I'll, I'll listen to a big fan of the podcast, listen all the time. Okay. And when you guys start the episode by going, oh, we liked this book. There's a small part of me that's like, oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> not, um, not that I want you to be miserable, but it's just more fun that way. Yeah. Thank I do. You know, I do also support our haters. So thank you. Um, and by that, I mean, people who are haters generally. Uh, you know what? The Don't worry about who it. Love, who love you to be haters. There we go. This is why you're a best-selling author, Mackenzie. The lovers of the haters. I mean, I also just use the word silliestness, so <laughs> debatable. Yeah, so I'm excited to do this book. I I read it when it first came out, which was in 2020, and it was sort of, I, I distinctly remember, it was sort of a surprise announcement, like, oh, prequel dropping? And then I pre-ordered it, and I got it from my local bookstore at curbside pickup and they had sort of like just started doing curbside pickup and they were like just cautiously doing that. Um, Cause after having been like fully closed for pandemic reasons and I, there had been so much preemptive backlash in the relatively short amount of time between it being announced and it coming out where people are like, why is Suzanne Collins expecting us to care about some like rich white man? And like, why wouldn't she write a book about like Rue? And like, why, you know, why am I supposed to care about the 10th hunger games? Why isn't it about the first hunger games? And like, people were so mad about this book before it even came out. And I was preemptively mad at them because I was like, did you like read the original Hunger Games books? Like Suzanne Collins 
is a writer who I admire so much and she's so smart and so incisive. And it just like, to me, I couldn't believe reading those books and being like, oh yeah, Suzanne Collins is just going to make you like pointlessly sympathize with an old white man just because she, you know, wants to cash in on this. And like, I, I didn't think that that's what she was going to do and it's not what she did. And I read this when it first came out and I liked it. And then on rereading it now for the podcast, like it, like on the reread, like knowing kind of what was to come, I liked it even more of like it slaps. So I am not like a huge original trilogy hunger game stan. I read them when they came out. I liked them. I didn't really think about them again. I watched the movies, liked them, didn't really think about them again. Um, was recently sort of developed a new appreciation for Hunger Games because of I taught a I taught a class this past summer at uh, Interlochen Academy, um, where I taught precocious teen novelists how to write books. Um, and one of my fellow instructors uses the first chapter of the Hunger Games to teach her kids about economy of prose. And I sort of like I listened into what she had to say about that, and I was like, oh yeah, she's actually really really smart, and especially I think in this particular moment we're having where authors are authors seem to be writing quotes or writing writing in a way that looks really good out of context on tumblr or instagram or tiktok but doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense in the context of a book and also generally has about 15 more words than it needs um and so i think in sort of the shadow of of the current the current prose trends we see um i was much more impressed uh with with this sort of like very simple prose that had sort of irked me before um but I, w- I remember when this was announced, I was annoyed because it felt like a cash grab. Uh, and there was sort of a trend. There was the big YA dystopian boom. And all these authors got really big because of that. And then YA sort of fell off. You had sort of a mini trend with like the Fault in Our Stars, cyclic kind of a thing. And then there really wasn't another big trend. And then during, it was sort of like pandemic, maybe a little pre-pandemic, there were all these authors that had gotten really big during the dystopian trend that suddenly announced they're like, oh, for no reason, definitely not money. And because my sales have never been as good, it's just because I kept thinking about this world, I'm going to do another book in my best-selling dystopian series. And I was very jaded and annoyed about that, particularly because as a YA author, I was annoyed that uh, the other people were taking what I perceived as possibly my shelf space and my marketing money <laughs> going back to these series that I was like, you finish that. Just stop, stop, stop. Like you don't need any more. We know it's a cash grab. It's fine. And so when this one was announced, sorry, I'm, I'm talking so much. Uh, when this one no, was announced, go, go off, I, was, cup. I was extremely annoyed with the cash grabbiness of it. Cause it just seemed dumb to me. It seemed like another one, like Suzanne Collins had had a I don't think she's written anything else other than like a picture book, but I was like, ah, oh, she hasn't had a hit. She's going back to the thing that made her. Um, and then I saw everybody else was trying to, uh, my, my interpretation of the backlash from where I sat was that everybody else was also annoyed that it was a cash grab, but because Hunger Games is sort of the like biggest of the dystopians, it felt like the cash grabbiest of cash grabs. And there was a certain amount of like, people felt like she had had her moment and she had earned her, earned her money as we, I think we often kind of put a limit on how much success female creators in particular can have before we then turn on them and decide they've, they've overstayed their welcome. Um, so my perception of the backlash was that people were feeling the same way I was, but they were trying to spin it into some kind of like righteous uh, social justice call out in terms of, I remember seeing two people who were like, I don't want to sympathize with a white man who becomes a genocidal maniac who kills children. That's problematic. And I'm like, folks, Y'all are obsessed with like 
books about women who fuck death. Like that's like the big trend on TikTok <laughs> right now. It's like literally fucking the devil. And uh, fall, yeah, there's so many books about like falling in love with the devil and everybody's obsessed with like the darkling and in uh, Lee Bardugo's books and all these like, everybody's like, I want a villain narrative. And then Suzanne Collins is like, okay, here's a villain narrative. And everyone's like, not like that. And I was so annoyed about the backlash because it was so, to me, it was so petty, but people were trying to couch it in this like righteousness. Um, but it yeah. was so silly. It was such silly backlash. I was like, if you can be annoyed, it's a cash grab. I certainly was. Um, but then much like you, I, I read the book and I was like, oh, oh, so this is, this is like a, this is a book that, that it has its own merits and stands beyond just being like a Hunger Games prequel. Yeah. I, cool. And rant. <laughs> I, I felt similarly, like when it was coming out, I was like, all right, I don't like the story is done. I read the story and it works as a story. It doesn't need anything else. I like, I don't, I don't need to read this. It's fine. Like whatever, chase that paper, I guess. But like, it's not for me. I don't care about it. Like I, I really like the original trilogy, but you know what? Like, I'm I I I don't need to read this. And then everyone I know who read it was talking about how good it was, and I was like, oh, maybe it's actually good. Oh well, I'll never read it. And I mean, not out of any like uh, I've I refuse to read this, but more out of like my brain can only read so many books, and most of them I want ghosts to be in. So <laughs> I I can't waste precious brain game. time <laughs> to read books without of which ghosts. there are precious precious few of either in this. Yes. Book. Um, um, there's the there's the ghosts of childhood innocence. This book is haunted. Oh, right. The ghosts of soldiers who died in the wars. Th that mm -hmm. is all true, but as I have said on this podcast before, I prefer when the secret monster was a real monster and not secretly man all along. Um, yeah. So I was like, whatever, I'll still never read it. And then we were reading it for this, and I'm like, all right, I guess I'll read it. And it did slap. This book does slap. It is it's very so good. <laughs> good. It's incredibly effective and somehow despite being like what like 10 15 years a sequel that came out like 10 years at least after the original source material still manages to be like deeply timely probably because our society continues to slide towards some sort of dark terrible nonsense as it is but yeah it this was very good <laughs> Oh, I was just gonna say we get more apocalyptic with every year that passes. So Hunger Games just becomes depressingly more and more relevant as we go. I was mostly impressed with this because I I I mean I liked the first books, but I was like, I don't it wasn't that I had moral objection to the the centering of, of Coriolana Snow. I just wasn't interested. Yeah. I was like, I don't mm -hmm. really I don't really give a shit. And then to it it reminded me of nothing so much as and I say this, this sounds like a uh, like a dunk, but it's not. I I re was reminded of the Star Wars prequels, um, mm. which I love dearly with my whole heart. Which I think are are terrible, but I love and I love the corruption arc of Anakin Skywalker across those those movies. And I think they have a great idea that it's poorly executed. And this felt like a similarly compelling corruption arc executed really, really effectively. Yes. I, I net like the way that she made you like, sort of root for this guy, even though the entire time you knew you weren't supposed to be rooting for him. 
and just so well, believably. And you root for him without you root for him without ever liking him. Yeah, like he's still and and the way she sort of plants the the seeds mm-hmm. of corruption early on in him, and you can see, and this is why I I sort of thought of Anakin too, is you see these traits in him that could really go either way. They you, he has these inherent things about him that could be used for a net positive, but could also be used for like a, a great terrible evil. It's just which side is he going to fall on? And I also, I loved the sort of like, I love characters that do the wrong things for the right reasons. And I think he had a little bit of that going on too. He just couldn't quite tap into, it, it was like he was two steps short of like real altruism and actually like he thought he was being unselfish, but he was being unselfish for selfish reasons to quote uh, one of my favorite television shows, Pushing Daisies. Uh, <laughs> And as a result, it just felt it his actions fall so catastrophically short of what they're meant to do. And then eventually watching him just sort of like lean into that and being like, well, this is this is the the essence of my nature, essentially. Like so I'm, I loved this book. Loved this book. Can't say can't say enough good things. Was so delighted. Yeah. And I, I also think the opposite is true, where like he ends up in these situations where his selfish actions end up being perceived as selfless because people are like thinking the best of him when he doesn't deserve that. Well, and then he starts thinking too, that he's like, Oh, I did that selfishly, but it was perceived as being a good thing. So maybe this is, this is a piece of me that I should lean, I should lean more into. Like people are approving of me having these sort of terrible behaviors, whether or not they, they think of them as, as having a net positive or a net negative outcome. Yeah. He's just like, he is so effectively portrayed as such a genius. Like he, and and I mean that, that like literally like the way the analytical way that his mind works and problem solving, he's able to work through problems throughout it. Like, I feel like very frequently in fiction, we're told like, Oh, this character is a genius. And we're shown that by being like, you know, cause they have like a huge IQ and they've done this and they have a hundred degrees. And like, that's how, you know, he's a genius. Whereas like we look at Coriolanus snow throughout this book and we just get to see like the ticking of his mind and how he works through all of the things that he encounters and how he manages to use all of them to his advantage in these like split second decisions that he builds on as time goes on. And it, it like so effectively to me portrayed this like brilliant genius mind that is working against the odds to like for survival really. And, and it, it, it just, it was fantastic. And he's such a bag of shit by the end of it. And it, oh, it's so good. He's such a bag of shit from the beginning. You just almost uh, don't yes. notice it. Because yes. it's, it's cloaked in, in poverty and this sort of like justification of his actions. And, and you go along with it. He's telling you why he's doing these things. And you're like, yeah, I get it. And then eventually you sort of, you don't get it anymore, but he's still giving you these very compelling justifications. I thought of that too, with that he, he really is a, he's a smart dude and she shows that so effectively. I feel like so often you read about, especially in school settings, which this book kind of ends up being like a school book in a lot of ways. Um, you read about characters that they're like, oh, they are the smartest person that's ever been at this school. And then everything they do in the book is so fucking dumb. Like it's just like mm-hmm. dumb decision after dumb decision. And the fact that they're like, you're a genius. And then, yeah, we get to see the machinations of his mind. And he actually comes up with things that I'm like, yeah, that's, I get it. And the fact that it's, it's a risk. I say this as a writer. It's a risk writing smart characters because then you actually have to write them. Um, yes. You actually have to be as smart as the characters. 
um, which I have found myself to be largely incapable of. Uh, <laughs> but she she does it. She writes like a genius character and and actually gives him genius mind machinations and just such a distinct. The voice of this book and the thought patterns are so distinct. And she really like she does it with Katniss too, where it's so sneaky yes. that the the prose is so bare bones. You almost think like, oh, it's just it's clinical writing. It's removed. It's um, I remember reading Hunger Games and thinking it read like a screenplay treatment. Like I'm just like, oh, there's not a lot there. And then you realize that's that's the voice, that's the character. She's so she's so entrenched in that in that particular way of thinking. It's just a much a much less flashy way of having a voicey book. Yeah, like the yes. way that he everything that he does. He is, it, it, it's just like a constant, every interaction he has with any other character, except for maybe his cousin, is him weighing the pros and cons of how this interaction is going to weigh out. Is it going to bring him like sympathy or praise from his teachers? Why or why not? Is it going to bring sympathy or praise from his classmates? Like what is, how can he do something that will stop a person from doing something that could get him in trouble, but make it look like he's doing them. And it's every, every time he talks to literally anyone, his brain goes through this whole like reasoning of how and why this interaction should play out and how the way that it plays out will best support what he needs out of the interaction. It's just, it's very good. And you and you notice it at first, but because he's thinking about it in a way that you're like, oh, he has to think this way to survive. He has to think this way to to make it through school, to get his to get uh, his family to keep their sort of poverty a secret. Like it's all for very justified reasons that you sort of normalize to it, and then you almost don't realize as he starts to sort of slip into use weaponizing that same those same thought patterns for uh, tremendous evil. And it's, I was so sort of lured into a false sense of security by this book. And I think that's what, what Hunger Games and this one do really effectively too, with the way they use violence. And we'll, we'll get to this more as we actually talk about the book is (laughs) that you normalize, you normalize to the violence. Um, And it becomes sort of, it's always shocking, but then you, part of the shock comes from the fact that you're not as shocked by it as you should be. Um, And that people are dying and you're sort of like, yeah, okay. Yeah. We knew that was going to happen. Um, and she's really good at just sort of luring you into this this false sense of security where you end up feeling, you, yeah, you you adapt and you acclimatize to to violence and trickery and sociopathy, and it's it's very good to quote to quote Kate. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and that this is not usually my role in the podcast, but should we get to what talking about the plot of it? <laughs> Yes, we should. Yeah. Sorry, that's normally my job, but I, I'm just so wrapped up in how much I enjoyed this. Yeah, no, listen, as the person who, who wanted to read this book, and like, by the way, if we haven't explicitly made this clear, there's a movie coming out soon, which is why I was like, oh, that'll be timely. That'll be some good SEO for the podcast. Like, <laughs> let's, let's do this book when the movie's coming know. out. I remember I re- the first time I saw the trailer for the movie, I was kind of like, okay, like, it's just more of the same. We get it. They're in the arena. They're fighting to the death. It's the, the girl and the boy are going to fall in love. And now I watch the trailers and I'm like hyped. I <laughs> yes. have been watching all the like YouTube has caught on to me really quick. And they're like, we think you might like this backstage or this back behind the scenes look at the Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And I'm like, I would like a behind the scenes look at the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. <laughs> and I'm doing the like the thing where you watch it and you're like, that's that part in the book. That's that part in the book. I'm, I'm hyped <laughs> for this movie. 
and that that the creepy Aryan look of of Coriolanus Snow. I don't know who the actor is, but he looks perfect. Yeah, I looked him up on IMDb, and I, I hadn't seen him for much. But I. I mean, I, I haven't seen him anything. I don't think he's done that much. He's relatively young. But the biggest news I learned from IMDb that um, Rachel Zegler plays Lucy and she is in real life dating the actor who plays Sejanus. Twist. What? Twist. Um, Twist. Anyway, I all this to say I'm feeling like Dr. Gall right now and I'm the game maker and you've all played my game of getting you to <laughs> like the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and... And I, my clever machinations have paid off. <laughs> I did what I did wonder why you sent me that box of poisonous snakes before, <laughs> before starting this podcast. Oh uh, no, it's fine. They, I, they, they know your smell. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> labeled <laughs> only open if you didn't like the book. <laughs> uh, okay, right. so this book, it's by the way, if you haven't read or seen the original Hunger Games trilogy, I gotta say that. You're already in the weeds, and I don't know how you made it this far in the podcast, but I we simply cannot summarize the whole Hunger Games trilogy to you. You gotta you gotta take that one up for yourself. Here in this one, it's set um, just before the tenth Hunger Games, whereas the Hunger Games Hunger Games is the seventy fourth Hunger Games. So this is crunch the numbers sixty four years before Katniss's first Hunger Games. Yes. Um, we are with a uh, young 18-year-old Coriolanus Snow, who if you d- do know, the one thing I'll say about the pre- the Hunger Games is if you do know the actual original Hunger Games trilogy, he is the corrupt sociopathic president in of, of, the, of the Hunger Games, Pan Am, the capital and all of the districts in the original Hunger Games. But here he is an 18-year-old who is struggling to maintain his family's name and noble standing because during the war he lost his uh his parents and his grandfather and any source of money his his family's money had been in uh weapons in the 13th district which was bombed early on in the war so their source of income has dropped off and their savings are depleted from living through the war. So he is going out of his way to try to uphold the look and um, status of the Snow family while making do with virtually nothing scraps that he and his cousin, uh, who is Tigress, who is an intern for a fashion designer, are able to pull together to make it look like their family still has something. Yeah, and Tigress, you might recall from mostly um, the third, I think only the third book, maybe a little in the second one, Tigress sticks around in the books, and like she is sympathetic in the original trilogy, and then so seeing her here, I was like, yes, my cat girl. Yes. <laughs> um. So it is Reaping Day, and Coriolanus has brokered a deal with his mentor at school, his his favorite teacher at school, to be put as one of the uh, district um, tributes mentors, which is a new program they're doing in an effort to get more people to pay attention to the Hunger Games. They are going to pair 
each tribute uh, up with a senior student at the academy who will act as their mentor and will guide them through and prepare them for the games. And he really needs to get a full scholarship to university so that he can, you know, get his foot in the world and start making connections because he doesn't have enough money to pay for university outside of a scholarship. So it is deeply important to him that he make a good showing as a mentor. So he is, of course, dismayed when prior to the reaping, when they are all assigned what tribute they will be, they will be mentoring, that he is stuck with the District 12 girl, literally in his eyes, the worst possible outcome. Because girls were already weaker than boys for potential Hunger Games victors. And the as we know from the original trilogy, the closer you are to the capital, the better your chances of being well fed enough to survive the hunger games essentially so he has he can has can i go oh yeah. can i go back slightly sure. and add a couple of things yeah please. Um, so one of the one of the things that becomes sort of uh, consequential later is that uh his family is living in a penthouse that is very fancy from the outside but inside they essentially have nothing and they are having uh they're concerned about uh the property tax that's coming up and I'm saying this, I can't remember if this comes up in this chapter or not until later in the book, but it's it's important that they're living in this penthouse and they can barely afford it and they're afraid there's going to be increasing uh, taxation upon it. And if they get kicked out, everyone will know they're actually poor um, and everyone thinks they're like living high. And also, most iconic line of the book, dropped early on, um, snow lands on top, baby. Snow um, lands on top. Coriolanus, yep. Yeah, his sort of, his family's motto is snow lands on top. They always come out on top. They're always, uh, they're always, yeah. Come, they, they, they make it through hard things, and uh, I just feel like we need to point out that Snowman's on top. And also at the school, we meet when he goes to the reaping. We meet uh, sweet baby angel cinnamon roll Sejanus Plinth, uh, mm. who is one of Coriolanus's classmates. Don't we meet him here? Yes, yes. That no, that okay. was like a mm, of like my sweet baby boy. Oh, I thought that was a mm, of wrong wrong part of the book. Um, <laughs> no, sorry. This is an audio medium, so you couldn't see that I was clutching my chest. <laughs> um. Important. Uh, so Sejanus is from District Two. 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 Thank you. Um, and him and his family are wealthy, and they're like actually wealthy, unlike all the rich people in the capital who just like pretend to be wealthy. Um, and they move to the capital, and he's a sweet baby angel. Yeah. Who, Let me sorry, uh, pull the quote that I would go. like to read about Sejanus. Oh, please do. Well, first of all, it was unprecedented that Sejanus, a district-born boy, was a student at the academy. But his father's lavish donation had allowed for most of the school's post-war reconstruction. And then shortly after that, Sejanus had arrived on the school playground 10 years ago, a shy, sensitive boy cautiously surveying the other children with a pair of soulful brown eyes, much too large for his strained face. When word had gotten out that he'd come from the districts, Coriolanus's first impulse had been to join his classmates' campaign to make the new kid's life a living hell. On further reflection, he'd ignored him. If the other capital children took this to mean that baiting the district brat was beneath him, Sejanus took it as decency. Neither take was quite accurate, but both reinforced the image of Coriolanus as a class act. And I think this is so efficient. Like, Suzanne is such a queen. Like, she's, like, so efficiently set up the stakes for everyone. And this is, like, an early example of what we see, what we were talking about earlier with Coriolanus, where he is, like, he's not 
really even a good person, but he's smart and like savvy enough to appear like a good person. And Sejanus is such a like sweet dummy, like really in spite of everything, still trusts people and believes the best in people. And he misses his home in district two and he feels out of place. And for some dumb, stupid baby angel reason, he decides to imprint on Coriolanus like a like a vampire or like a werewolf imprinting on a creepy vampire baby. Um, and he decides that Coriolanus is his friend. And I really enjoy the like the sort of running joke of the book where people keep saying to Coriolanus, like, your best friend Sejanus. And he's like, We're not friends. He's like, Oh, your best friend Sejanus. Like, we're not friends. And at the end of the book, when he's like, we were more like brothers and friends. I'm like, you're such a shit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but continue. I, I, we had to. I had to mention the lands on top because I'm considering getting that as my uh, face tattoo. Uh, and then, where would we be without sweet baby angel Sejanus? Yes. I also, and- I keep hearing snow lands on top, like sung by Beyonce. Like, finally, my <laughs> snow lands on top. <laughs> well, I mean, re- relevant because of how much singing there is in this book. Um, and we see sort of the first, I mean, the first song we hear, hear, read, see, whatever, is the anthem Gem of Pan Am, which, okay, so I also have to say, the thing I love about Hunger Games, and the thing I loved almost more about this book, is the interplay of like, silliness and shocking violence, and the way yeah. that then makes the makes the violence so much darker um so like the fact that their anthem is called gem of panem is so stupid and even just like all the stuff about the clothes is often really stupid and there will be or or even some of the like the imagery where his grandma gives him a rose and he like pricks his finger on it and i'm like okay like that that's a little on the nose like and and there are so many like moments of just kind of basic silliness to it that then the very next page there will be this like act of shocking violence that stands out so much sharper because you were just listening to someone sing a song called Gem of Pan Am. Like I, it's, it's really smart the way she interplays those. And so, yeah, we have lots of songs in this book. There's Gem of Pan Am. And then Lucy sings a song when she gets reaped, repped, uh, whatever the the past tense of reaped is. She's Um, been reaped. Reaped. Yes. Lucy is Lucy Gray. Again, the silliness, the fact that her name is Lucy Gray. And then later when you meet her family and they're all named like Maud Topaz and and Charlie Turquoise or whatever. Like, it's so stupid. I love it. Um, but so you meet Lucy Gray when she gets reaped, reaped, um, and she's wearing this like bright, colorful, roughly dress. And when she gets called up, she drops a snake down the front of this other girl's dress and you don't know why. And then she goes up to the stage and sings this song about uh, how a boy ruined their life um and it's great iconic entrance yes and i kept thinking of the part in mean girls when katie is like giving her acceptance speech and the principal keeps being like people don't usually give a speech like you you can just <laughs> you can just stop talking <laughs> yes but she in in um singing this song after being reaped uh she does like <laughs> capture the district's attention in a way that is unexpected from like the way that these briefing ceremonies normally happen so coriolanus immediately is like okay 
this has things have changed like when i went into this i had the least desirable tribute but now she's causing a stir which moves me up and moves my now people are going to be paying attention to me in a way they normally wouldn't uh for who my tribute is so i can use this and that is like again like the way his mind is constantly like okay so this is this is how is this going to benefit me and this is how it's going to benefit me. Um, so he's he's pretty excited. He's feeling like pretty on top of the world after the reaping because of all of the tributes, like that is the one, that is the reaping that made the biggest splash. And his tribute is the one who made the biggest splash. And even like teachers are saying to him like, oh, wow, like you really lucked out. Like, you know, she's going to be great and you're going to have like a great time getting attention for her. Uh, but the... Dean of the school, um, Casca Highbottom. Casca Highbottom. Again, the silliness. The fact that his name is Highbottom. I never got over that. Every single time they said it, I giggled. Yes, it is supremely stupid. Uh, So many of the names are supremely stupid. So many of the names. I love the stupid names. They're so (laughs) stupid. I know a lot of them are Roman, but like even like. Sejanus took me a long time to normalize too. Mm-hmm. Even Coriolanus, like let's Cor- talk about that. Cor- it has anus in it. Yeah. It does have anus in it. Like, why did you pick the one Shakespeare Roman name that has anus in it? I wonder if when she wrote Hunger Games and she picked this name randomly for him, if then she like got to the idea for this book and was like, "Fuck, I got to write a book about a kid named Anus." I mean, to be fair, his his loved ones do call him Corio as a nickname, which is but right. It's better better Jupiter. that way than the other. Oh, oh, see, I would take Corio over if you're gonna if you're gonna pick a, a half of a half of that name to be called by. <laughs> yes, let's absolutely. let's take a quick two minutes to brainstorm better nicknames. Lainey, <laughs> absolutely. Rio, if you were Lainey, gonna pick Corey. half of the name, that would be the half I would pick. But I do feel like the name Corio. Is somehow stupider than Coriolanus. Oriole. Maybe just call him just call him Nuss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old uh, anus. But so um, Dean Highbottom. Wait, so I want to interject that Dean Highbottom is played by Peter Dinklage in the movie, and I'm really excited about that. Excellent. Which it's is perfect casting. And also, I have to do a slight aside. You guys are always you. I can't believe you have me back on the podcast because I talk so much and then we go so over time. Um, but uh, so Kate and I both listened to the audiobook of this, which is read by Santino Fontana of, of everything. He's in a ton of stuff. He's the the bad prince in Frozen, and he's the he's Tootsie on Broadway, and he was in Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Like he's a he's a prominent actor. Uh, but more importantly, he is a Broadway singer. Um, and made the strong choice. I don't know if it was him or if it was the audiobook director or what. He made they somebody made the strong choice to have him read every single one of the many, many, many songs in this book in a monotone with absolutely no intonation to them. And I get that some of these songs are not real songs. Uh, well, I mean, they're she wrote them for the book, like the ones Lucy sings. But then also there are frequently she'll put in lyrics to like folk songs like like the uh oh, oh my darling clementine yeah or stay on the sunny know. side yeah yes and son san, san, san what's his name santino no santino fontana decided to read these folk song lyrics totally deadpan monotone i i really struggled with him as an audiobook narrator 
And the reason this came to mind, though, is because the only choice I liked of his was that in spite of not having Peter Dinklage been cast at the time of this audiobook recording, I feel like he did a perfect Peter Dinklage impression <laughs> for uh, my bottom when he read it. So I was Excellent. like, man, I, I don't know if they heard him do it. And they're like, this is who we got to do. Or if just like psychically, everybody knows that this role was meant to be played by Peter Dinklage. <laughs> I, yeah, like the thing about like him doing the audiobook, like I, I didn't take a, the moment to Google him or anything. So I had no idea he was a singer. And I was prepared to come into this podcast recording and say, if you're gonna have a book that's so reliant on song, where it's such a through line of the book on all sides of this young man's life, why would you hire someone who can't sing? So to learn that they did hire Little someone did who you can know, sing. A Tony, a Tony Award winning Broadway singer read this book. And he like that that he can he is a singer, and yet either he or the director or whoever chose to have him chant each song in a yeah. dull ass monotone is shocking to me because it was bad enough to make me like I would anytime a song started I would be like okay can I fast forward or is there going to be interjections like do I have to sit here and listen to him like how fast can I turn up the speed of this book so I can get through this song and get back to the story because this is excruciating to listen to it was distracting um, and I get that maybe, you know, you have the movie coming up, they don't want to write music for all these songs, or they know they're going to hire some, like, I get there's probably some mechanics behind it. But he could have done something to read it just a little bit less, like it was a Gregorian chant. Yeah, like it was, it was, he got less intonation than when I, I didn't care for his narration as a whole. But man, the songs were distractingly bad. Which is too bad because Suzanne Collins, unlike most authors who put song lyrics in their book, usually it's distractingly bad because I find the lyrics distractingly bad. She's a good lyricist. Like these are these are good songs. I would listen to I'm I'm ready for this album to drop. I've been listening to Rachel Ziegler's recording of The Hanging Tree just in my in my continued uh, full stand of this book slash movie. Um, and it's great. Like the hanging tree is great. And she wrote that. And I'm excited to hear what they do with the music for this movie, but good grief. It was a strong choice, wrong choice. Yeah. 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 I didn't listen to the audiobooks. So I don't know all about all that, but I just wanted to say, I'm uh, yeah excited that they cast Rachel Zegler, who, you know, is a singer was Maria and the new side story. If you didn't know that you, the listener, I know you know it. Um, yeah, I'm ex I'm just I'm excited for this movie and I wanted to say also that yeah, like it's a bummer that it didn't land in the audiobook because I do think the lyrics that she wrote are like good and they totally track as like a folk song that could have existed or like mm -hmm. she fucking nailed it. This mm, nailed it. Anyway, let's zoom through a couple more chapters games. of the book. Um Yeah, sorry so, about that. It's okay. So, uh he after all of all of his classmates, as I was saying, and, and all these other teachers are praising um, Coriolanus for landing this choice, he is confronted with Dean Highbottom, who um, points out that like he had he was very stressed at the beginning of the book, uh, Coriolanus, because his cousin was going to fix his like one good dress shirt so that it would look fancy enough for this. Uh, reaping ceremony because he can't wear his school uniform and he doesn't own any other nice clothes at the moment. Um, 
And other people had praised him for it, but Dean Highbottom immediately calls him on, you know, wearing like stitched up his, clothes. His father's old, his father's old shirt because Dean Highbottom used to be friends with Coriolanus's late father, but like something happened and now he fucking hates Coriolanus. Yes. Um, and like calls him and basically says like, you are pretending to be rich and I see it. And I know the only way you can go to university is if you do well in this. And I know that you're secretly poor and makes a demonstration of it in such a way that uh, Coriolanus is deeply shamed and embarrassed by it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he is, he is, even though he was high on praise from other folks, he is back down and uh, stewing after the confrontation with the Dean and the next day, the tributes are coming into the Capitol on a train, and his cousin Tigress suggests that he go to the train to pick up Lucy, uh, Lucy Gray, to introduce himself to her to make a good impression. And because if there are cameras there, then you know it'll catch him like a step of, ahead of his classmates, like really taking this mentorship seriously. But not only are there no cameras but the tributes are transported on livestock in livestock cars on the train and then immediately after being unloaded from the car when he presents uh lucy gray with a rose and introduces himself to her they are all shoved into a caged truck and in a split second decision he decides to go with them as like a show of the peacekeepers say like either get on the truck or leave and he's mm-hmm. like, I, if I leave, I'll look weak in front of the tributes. So I need to yeah. get on the truck, uh, which ends up going great for him because they all get dumped in the chimpanzee con- cage at the zoo. And he is yeah. able to very quickly get his bearings and uh, start talking to reporters that are there and uh, how Lucy, you know, says, you know, let's put on like a little bit of a show and like act like we are in control of the situation and let that will make people like us. And she is correct. Like everyone loves him for going out and doing this. They love Lucy. Um, They, everybody loves Lucy. Yes. It's a, it's a, (laughs) he makes a huge splash and uh, you know, he is, he is famous throughout the district for doing this and for seeing so composed while doing so. Uh, to everyone except the dean, who gives him a demerit for uh, putting another student in da- putting a student in danger, and says that he put himself in danger, and thus it is deserving of a demerit. Yes. And if he gets three demerits, he will in fact be expelled from school. I thought this part was interesting because it's 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 fun, fun, fascinating, uh, whatever uh, to see the evolution from the 10th Hunger Games to the 74th Hunger Games, where like the tributes coming in uh, and the 74th Hunger Games are so like, there's so much pomp and circumstance when they come on the train and even like Katniss and, and PETA who are sort of the lowest tributes are in this like great apartment and they get the clothes and everything. And so to see sort of the, the, the disregard that they have for the tributes where they put them on the livestock carts. And I think like some of the tributes die in the train, don't they? They like are so they're so neglected. I can't remember, but they're, they're they, treated so terribly. I thought it was, it was fascinating to see that, evo- see the sort of start and end point of the evolution of the way these, like the hunger games are turned into this sort of spectator sport. Um, again, commentary. 
Yeah, which is, like, the purpose of this mentorship program is that, like, oh, the Hunger Games aren't very popular. Like, they're supposed to be this big punishment, but nobody's watching. And so that's, yeah, that's part of their task. And I I think this book is so good at just showing the casual, like, dehumanization of the tributes and, like, how, you know, throughout it you kind of see, like, oh, well, nobody from the Capitol got hurt, so it's fine. And, like, they're so... Yeah, they're they're just so casually dehumanized the tributes, which of which in the later books it's more of a non-casual dehumanization. It's a formal dehumanization. Um, I'm gonna broadly summarize the next couple chapters just because we still have so much book to get through. Um, but <laughs> it's a trendy just, book. Just yeah, everything that happens in it, it's well done and it's good. Yeah, it is incredible. <laughs> um, we learn that Sejanus was assigned to a boy from District Two, which is the district that he is from, and the boy is a former classmate of his. And this was an assignment that his father had lobbied for. Uh, and he wants to trade tributes with Coriolana, Coriolanus. Um. And Coriolanus, you know, recognizing that he has an in with Lucy and like how well received she's been by the public, politely declines and says that it's because he wants, he doesn't want Sejanus to get in trouble with his father. And uh, the mentors all have a chance to meet their tributes. And during which time most of them are having issues getting along with their tributes because they are still mostly treating them like animals. Um, But Coriolanus is able, of course, to uh, speak more with Lucy Gray and answer the questions they're supposed to answer. And in the course, and this is a thing that he does throughout the book, but in the course of doing the interview, he realizes that a lot of the interview questions are stupid, that like they're questions that were written by people who live in the capital that don't reflect what life is really like in the districts. So throughout the book, he is in his head revising how they could be doing this more effectively. And over time, that starts to bleed through to um, Dr. Gall, who is the game maker for this game and who starts to take a shine to Coriolanus because he does start having these observations, which she recognizes as like these moments of making the games more appealing to people of, you know, ways to make the games either more ruthless or more entertaining. And that only sort of reaches a crescendo when he is the only person in his class to write a proposal, um, which was their homework on a way that they could get more people to tune in. And based on a conversation they have in class. By the way, the, the reason, sorry, the reason he's the only one to do it is because yeah. one of his classmates gets murdered by a tribute. Yes, I was getting to that. Okay. <laughs> I promise. That's important. Um, during class. This, was the, this, this, sorry, this scene coming up with the, with the snakes and the essay was the moment I was like, I turned a hard corner for this book. I was like, I'm in. Like before I'd been a little skeptical and then the snake thing happened. I was like, got it. Love this. So they are, um, he writes this essay based on conversations that they had in class about, you know, different things that they could do, and some of his own ideas, and he's supposed to work with a partner. But that day at the monkey cage at the zoo, after taunting her tribute, one of their classmates is murdered by their tribute. And it is a very, like, upsetting moment for most of their class. And while most of them are up all night for other reasons. He can't sleep, so he writes this essay. 
And then in the morning, he drops it off at Dr. Gall's office and tells his- And he's supposed to have written it with with Clemencia, who's his partner, who's one of the other students in his class. But she's too freaked out from watching- her friend and classmate get murdered. Yes. So he tells over her a meatloaf sandwich. He tells her that he did it and for them and he dropped it off. And then the two of them as the only quote unquote pair to have completed the assignment are brought to her lab. And they are asked again by Dr. Gall, who did you both work on this together? And Clemencia like, oversells it she's like oh yes of course like we worked on it a lot and we talked about it and then i typed it up and printed it out and i brought it to coriolanus and then he dropped it off and then she asked coriolanus if that's true and he's like i did drop it off <laughs> and to <laughs> prove it the, she- the linguistic the linguistic mechanics that both of them go like the overselling of like her being like i totally did it i walked 10 steps to the library and i checked out with my library card and i printed like I have been that kid on a group project who's like way overselling their involvement. And I have also been Coriolana standing there being like, I fully did all of this. Like this, aside from being searing social commentary about the way we commodify violence, this book also just really understands what it's like to be a high school senior. Yes. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so she says, okay, well, let's go over it. But oops, my assistant dropped it in the snake pit. Could you two get it for me? And so Coriolanus reaches into this like big glass terrarium of snakes and like pulls out a few pages of the essay and nothing happens. And then Clemencia goes to do the same thing and the snakes attack her. And it turns out that Dr. Gall was doing that to catch them in the lie. The snakes didn't attack uh, Coriolanus because they smelled him from the paper, but because Clemencia didn't touch it at all, they attacked her because they weren't familiar with her scent. And uh, she is carted off to the hospital immediately, injected with antivenom and carted off to the hospital. And then Dr. Gall is like, all right, like, don't lie to me. I hate liars. Anyway, yours was a good essay and we're going to do these the things. snakes can tell if you're lying. <laughs> they smell it all over you. <laughs> Um, so the, uh, the, the two things that, that he had mentioned that were of particular note are that it should be possible to bet on the different tributes and it should be possible to send them gifts, um, during the games, like food and water to help like bolster them, like, so that you could like buy a gift for your favorite, which we do know, you know, comes to happen in the later Hunger Games and is in fact, uh, you know, enacted for this Hunger Game as well. So uh, they find out that the tributes aren't being fed at the monkey house. So Coriolanus starts stealing food to bring to her or like making extra food, what little food he has in the morning to bring some to Lucy Gray uh, and is again like caught on the cameras at the zoo from the reporters and like makes a big show of it every time. Lucy sings again at the zoo and like tons of people fall in love with her because of it. She's a great performer. She like always asks the district, the Capitol kids, their names and thanks them for like bringing her little gifts and food. And he st- does steal food from the dining hall at school to bring to her which is a big deal because they are forbidden from taking food from the dining hall period, let alone for him to take food and bring it to, you know, a 
a tribute, a district kid, not even another, not even for him or his family. Uh, But he brings it to her a day that they are going on a little field trip to the arena where the Hunger Games will be held. And while the mentors and the tributes are there, a bunch of bombs explode at the arena, killing some of the mentors, killing some of the tributes, and injuring many more, including both uh, Lucy Gray and Coriolanus, who is trapped by a, a burning beam that Lucy Grace saves him from, saves his life. And uh, he is whisked away to the hospital. The tributes are whisked back to the zoo where a veterinarian is going to work on them. Oof. That was another one of those, like, it's so terrible, but also just the, like, the the grim humor of them saying, like, the veterinarian did everything she could, <laughs> but he died in the night. It's like, oh, God. Like, it's so <laughs> yeah. grim. So one of them's like, oh, but time. but it's the best veterinarian. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. Also, it, when they're when they're escaping from the bombs, Marcus, one of the tributes, escapes from the arena, and you. There's a moment where Lucy's like about to follow, like she kind of has a chance to escape and get out, but instead she turns back and saves Coriolanus. Yes, and we foreshadowing do- important. Yes. And we do also find out that a lot of the other, while Marcus was able to escape and is hidden somewhere, there were three other tributes who tried to escape and all three of them were shot dead. Um, Mm -hmm. And during the funerals for the uh, Capitol kids, the mentors who were killed during the bomb, they do drag these bodies out through the street in a Mm -hmm. horrifying fashion. In order to really bring home to the districts, like that district kids don't matter, but capital kids do. And then is it at the funeral that they're like, we need someone to sing the national anthem, Gen- Gem of Pan Am, Coriolanus. <laughs> Doesn't he have to sing the national anthem yes. like five times in this book? He sings well, it once. One of the other times they, they use a hologram yes. of him. Yeah. <laughs> right, of course, of course. But yeah, because no one else knows it all the words to it, but he does. No one knows all the verses because his grandma sings it all the time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So they, they get closer to the, uh, the actual, um, the actual hunger games. They've, they've been put off a few days because of the bombs and the, the deaths and the funerals. And they are for the first time having interviews with the tributes before the games themselves and they are voluntary. But at this point, Coriolanus knows that like the public loves Lucy Gray and that is his biggest, like at this point, he doesn't even think she can win. He just wants to her to get as far and be as notorious as possible so that it will give him, it will make him look good as a mentor and and the the interviews are conducted by uh our corny king uh what's his name flicker well, lucky flickerman well it's yeah it's the, lucky flickerman which must be the father or even grandfather of caesar flickerman so it's important to know that caesar flickerman who's hosting the hunger games in katniss and peta's day is a nepo baby <laughs> who only got his job because his distant relation lucky flickerman again the silliness where Lucky Flickerman is so bad at his job and like interspersing his Hunger Games commentary with the weather reports and like juggling and he like doing magic. He like wants to be a magician and yes. he brings this trained parrot who's like so miserable. 
it's so silly and strange. I loved it. It's just like it is it is like like Mackenzie was saying earlier, it's this like deeply silly, deeply stupid window dressing of like child murder. And so you're like laughing at this like dumbass man who is trying to doing make his amateur talk. magic yeah yeah doing amateur magic on television while while he's like killing time between children being murdered yeah it's hilarious and chilling mm-hmm. is fantastic i love this book so much after or at some point around i think it's after the interview Lucy says to to Coriolanus, like, I need you to believe that I can win because if we start, like, right now, you are playing all of our strategy as if I'm going to die immediately. But, like, almost half the tributes are dead now from other reasons. Like, I need to play this to win. You need to treat me like I'm going to win. And if we do that, I, I think we could get it done. And he, like, he's had, like, He's been attracted to her for a little while now, but that like sort of clinches it because he's like, yeah, like if she wins, I can, you know, maybe like A, I'll get a full ride to university. B, um, maybe we can make a life together. Maybe they won't send her back to the districts. Maybe I can bring her back from the district. Like he has all of these great ideas, but it, they all involve her winning. And even now that he recognizes his attraction and feelings towards her, there's a moment during her interview where she sings and everyone's obsessed with her and he's furious because they're obsessed with her and not him. Like, instead of being like, oh, like Coriolanus has like prepared his tribute in such a good way, it's all on her and he's mad about it. And it's one of like several times where he like really, I mean, like he is showing his quote unquote true colors throughout. Like we know, yes, we know he's, he's only looking out for himself, but there are these points where he doesn't even seem to realize like how what a shithead he's being because he's so furious about it's they're great it's great here's a quote he swallowed his peevishness and accepted the congratulations that were pouring in from all sides they helped to remind him that he was the real star of the evening even if lucy gray was confused on the issue in the eyes of the capital she belonged to him what point would there be in crediting a district tribute yeah, and like throughout, people are like, "Oh, she's your tribute. She's your tribute." And so he definitely feels like an ownership over her because she is a district girl. She is not a human being with her own thoughts and feelings. Obviously, well, it's interesting. It's interesting too that this is the moment where he sort of starts to recognize his attraction to her, and then immediately starts doing the Coriolanus brain thing of like, "Okay, but how do I use this? Like, how is this attraction going to benefit me? It's not something that can just exist because." And and also it's it's attraction that then quickly forms into ownership. Like you said, he can only look at her from this point of view of like, what can she do for me? What power do I have over her? What power can I, or how can I use the power I have over her to get, to get further or to, uh, it's, it's just like, it's, it's diabolical. It, his sense of ownership over her, which does really seem to start around this time and continues through the rest of the book is it is just breathtakingly done and it is it is upsetting and chilling and wonderful the way that that Suzanne Collins puts it together like it's so 
it so seamlessly slips from like, well, my tribute or like, you know, my girl or whatever into like, she is mine. I, Lucy is mine. She doesn't belong to anyone else. She belongs to me. She, you know, is and like outside of the like, oh, well, like she's my tribute in into like, this is a human being who belongs to me and continues even past the Hunger Games that like when he sees uh, someone who belongs to me and owes me. Yes. It's she's always in his debt in in his brain. She owes him gratitude, but also like owes him love at a certain point, like feels like you and and it's it's it's. Terrible. Yes. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> um, so as the games are starting, he uh, gives her a bunch of food and gives her one last gift, which is his mother's compact, which is he has taken out like the little bit of rouge that was left in it. And it's just given her an empty compact with a mirror that he claims is, you know, because she's like, it- it'll be a way for her to like check her appearance or whatever, but like makes clear to her that it would be a way for her to store rat poison um, in, and she could use that as it, it is something she can use towards winning because they've come up with all of these ways that she would need to win. And it would be, you know, she needs to run away immediately and then find a way to like take other people out without being hands on. And so, you know, here's the idea that, that, she can put rat poison in it and she'll have it and she can use the poison to take out the other tributes. So. And by the way, this is another thing that was foreshadowed earlier when um, she and the other 12 district, uh, the other 12 tribute um, are taking turns um, sleeping because they're being bitten by the rats in the zoo cage. Um, Foreshadowing rat poison. Yes. Um, So the, the, Hunger Games start, and as they start, Marcus, the boy who escaped, who was Sejanus's tribute, uh, as they first reveal the arena, Marcus is still alive and has been beaten badly and is strung up in the arena uh, to serve as like a warning to everyone that this is what happens when you fuck with the districts. So mm-hmm. not long after the game start, one of the other tributes, seemingly Mercy kills him. There's no yeah. good audio. Oh, God, that was so brutal oh god yeah there's no there's no good uh, audio in the arena and we so we just see that one of the tributes has like climbed up the post where he's being hung and is talking to him for a little while and then he seems to nod his assent and then she murders him um with an axe ugh. with an axe and so she gets the point of the kill but also puts him out of his misery and later that night, uh, Sejanus, who has been in kind of a, a depression since the this whole thing has been happening, since Marcus ran off, since the bombing, um, his mother calls... Because, because he's a nice boy in a terrible situation. Yes, the entire time he's been... Um, he hasn't, he doesn't like the games, obviously, you know, he's a district kid who's now living in the capital. He hates everything about it. He, you know, in class will constantly be disruptive because he questions why the game should even exist. He questions the humanity of the people participating. He, you know, makes a stand against the existence of the games at all. And eventually like stops coming to school for a little bit and then sort of disappears. And his mother calls... Coriolanus and is like, hey, have you seen Sejanus today? 
And he's like, no, why would I have seen him? And she's like, ah, he's disappeared. We don't know where he is. I thought maybe you, because you're his best friend, <laughs> might, <laughs> might know where he is. And- like, he's not my best friend. Yes. <laughs> Acquaintance is the best. Like, oh, yeah, like, I don't, I don't really know him that well. And then Dr. Gall calls and is like, hey, uh, have you seen Sejanus? And... You know, or and he's like, no, why would I have seen him? I'm not his friend. He's like, I think you're his friend. <laughs> and he denies being his friend. He's like, okay, well, I asked around who would know him. And everyone said it was you, that you're the only person who's nice to him or knows him, which I think makes you his friend. And anyway, it turns out that he snuck into the arena and we need someone to go in and get him. <laughs> and it needs to be someone he trusts. This, did I, did I, uh, I can't remember if I exaggerated this in my head or not, but in my head, he's like, at the house and, and the the Sejanus's mom is over at the apartment and she's like, I just don't know where he could be. And Coriolanus like looks over her shoulder and on TV, he like sees yeah. Sejanus sneaking into the arena and he's like, ah, <laughs> I have to go do something really quick. I'll be right back. Um, Yeah, but uh, they can't even, like it's his outline, like because it's in shadow, you can't even really tell that it's him, but he's like, but it's of like course. So it's so close to being, it's so close to being like a cartoon where yes. he like sees it over her shoulder. It's like almost sitcom in the best way. And that juxtaposed with him, like literally on the phone with Gaul while Sejanus's mom is in the room being like, well, I called because you're his friend being like, I'm not his friend. <laughs> Why yeah. does everyone keep saying I'm his friend? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but he does um, go to the arena, and he does talk Sejanus. Because he has to go to. Because he has to. Go. He has to. He like, is. He is yeah, basically all threatened. He's he's escorted there by peacekeepers. Yes, uh, and he does go in and convince Sejanus to leave, basically by saying like, "Oh, well, like I know that you want to do good for you know your whole thing is to, like die a martyr, but you wouldn't be able to die a martyr." because they've turned the brightness down on the camera so nobody can tell that you're here and they'll never let people Wait, know this that was one here. of my this was another one of my favorite character like Coriolanus characterizing moments like he has all these really like obviously terrible truly evil depraved thoughts but then he has these moments where it's just like so dumb and silly and I loved it so much <laughs> and this is one where so he sees Sejanus in the arena doing this like a like a ritual over Marcus's body because it's what they used to do in district two uh when people would die is they put food over their bodies for the afterlife I can't remember what the comment is I should have written it down but he makes some comment like in his head he's like that's so stupid and he's like he's like oh have fun in the afterlife here's your bread (laughs) and it's like the dumbest snarkiest teenager side and he has a couple of those that just like caught me so off guard I think I laughed out loud at that one even though it's (laughs) grim no it was it was great it he just he's such a good character and i hate it but it's so good (laughs) um but he he does get sejanus out and in the process he does have to kill a tribute who attacks him who he beats to death with a two by four and then he is he is stabbed and so is sejanus i think or scratched yeah they're yeah they're both hurt so they do have to go back to the hospital and get like, or get stitched up. Um, actually, I don't think they go to the hospital. I think they go to the Citadel, which is where the game makers work. Um, and back in school the next day, uh, Sejanus's dad announces that 
they are establishing the Plinth Prize, which will be a full scholarship for the mentor whose tribute wins the game. So now Coriolanus is even more focused on having Lucy Gray win because now it doesn't matter that he has a demerit. It doesn't matter if the Dean hates him. If he wins a full scholarship from an outside source, he doesn't have to worry about like being nice to the Dean and worrying about any machinations there that might keep him from graduating with a big enough, you know, endowment to go to university. So he is like, has doubled down on how badly he wants to win. We find out, we watch a bunch of the other tributes die, including the other district 12 tribute Jessup, who it turns out one of those bites at the zoo was from a rabid animal and he now has rabies and uh, Coriolanus works together with his, he and uh, Jessup's mentor had been like sort of forming a loose alliance throughout because they knew that their tributes had formed an alliance. Mm -hmm. And now he and Jessup's mentor work together to send. Liz Estrada. Yes. I believe is her name. Um, And, 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 and we see them, this is it's like, it's all foreshadowing of what we see in the later books where they can deliver food and drink by drones. Like we, you know, we see um, Haymitch doing that, but here it's like a little bit buggy. It doesn't work super well. It's like they're working out the kinks of it. Um, but they, uh, he and, yeah. and Jessup's mentor um, work together to send a lot of water to Lucy because they remember, um, that people who have rabies have hydrophobia and think this will be a way to help her ward Jessup off. And uh, they do. And, you know, Lucy Gray sits with him while he dies. And that's like another one down for, for Lucy Gray to. And again, again, the silliness juxtaposed with child murder. Yes. Where this, this kid has rabies and there's like a drone that flies over his head with water bottles. And he's like, ah. What was that? And he's like distracted from, and it was so, and then they're like, send more water in. And it's so, it's so dumb. And then you're like, oh God, now she has to sit with him while he dies. Like, oh, it's horrible. But also it was so, I was imagining him like mid werewolf transformation, like <laughs> napping at the water in the sky. Like. Um, and also then in an interview, like the post death interview, Liz Estrada says um, that's who he was at heart, a protector. I don't think he would have ever won the games because he'd have died trying to protect Lucy Gray. And then Lucky Flickerman says, oh, like a dog or something. A really good one. No, not like a dog, like a human being. Huh. Like. (sighs) And then he pulls a scarf out of her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Coriolanus has to go back to the Citadel to get his uh, stitches looked at. And while he's there, he notices that there's a big tank of those snakes that he had to pull his essay out of. And here's surmises from the chit chat that he overhears that these snakes are maybe going into the arena and he panics and realizes that he has a handkerchief that Lucy Gray had given him before the games and drops it into the snake pit in the hopes that they'll get, you know, acclimated to her scent and not attack her if they are actually released at the games. 
Um, yeah. And by the and that's like a big if, and he's sort of stressed. He's like, "Oh no, what if I get caught?" And he's like, "Oh, they probably won't go to the games anyway because you know why would they do that? Because for the last nine games, it hasn't been anything like that. It's literally just been put the children in like a plain arena, and that's it. Which is which is like what they're trying to do now is like innovate it and make it more interesting, quote unquote. I like obviously it's horrible but like you know more compelling television the way that we see it in the future hunger games yes um and we do see lucy um a bunch of the other tributes kill each other then lucy kills a couple by poison and eventually it's just her and um one last tribute who is uh his name's reaper yeah and he's sort of a weirdo but like he's um Clemencia's implied by the fact that his name is Reaper. Yeah. But he seems like to me it seemed like he was written as if he was maybe like autistic or had like some kind of like neurodivergent weirdness to him. But also he is he's been trying like whenever someone dies, he's been trying to like put all the bodies together, but he doesn't really seem to like actively fight. Like it anyway, he's been doing that. Yes, um, but eventually uh, Lucy is able to, um, he, he, was it that he also had rabies or was it that he drank the poison? I can't remember. The poison. The poison, poison. okay. Yeah. Was there someone else who had rabies maybe? There was someone else who no, drank the poison. Okay. Who they yeah. thought maybe... Because when they're because at first like they drool and die like the way that the death occurs okay obviously they're not sure yes um but so she she does he does drink the poison and then it's just Lucy and she is the winner of the games and for like five seconds Coriolanus is like this is fucking fantastic I'm um, so like as Lucy has to like count the bodies because she's not sure if she won and then. Reaper dies, yeah. and it's which, just Lucy. which is another like foreshadow for the games where Coriolanus is like, oh, in the future they should have a scoreboard so the 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 tributes know when one of them dies. Yes, um, such an innovator. And for like yeah. a second, Coriolanus is so excited because he's like, yes, I did it, Lucy won. I have a full ride scholarship to university. Um, I bet because he has like a friendship with a former nightclub owner who is like deep into the black market and is you know, hoping to open his nightclub again. And he's like, and he had already expressed interest in like finding a way to get Lucy from district 12 back to the, to the Capitol. And he's like, we'll get Lucy back to the Capitol and it'll be great. And I'll have a great life. And then he's called into the Dean's office and he assumes it is my girlfriend. Yeah. I love her so much for totally unselfish reasons. Definitely approaching this healthily. (laughs) He assumes that uh, Dean Highbottom is going to congratulate him, but instead he explains that uh, he has the napkin with the school crest on it, the compact that he knows belonged to Coriolanus's mother, and the handkerchief, mm-hmm. which has Coriolanus's father's uh, initials stitched onto it, and has essentially is like, you cheated, and you have two choices, either you get expelled and like sent to prison or you get, you can choose to become a peacekeeper. And so he's like, I guess I'm going to become a peacekeeper. Yes. And he's so mad about it because he was destined for greatness. And instead he's been totally derailed by now having to go spend the rest of his life being a peacekeeper in the middle of nowhere. And there's no, like no glory to be had in that. He's too good for it, man. 
Yeah, the snow is falling on the bottom. (laughs) Right. Snow's melting. It's like slushy ice in the street mixed with mud. (laughs) The worst kind of snow. Yeah. The worst kind. Um, But then his best friend in the world, Sejanus, also becomes a peacekeeper in 12. Yeah, They do their secret handshake. Um, Because he does request to go to 12 as his assignment, which is not a big request usually um and he is he you know sejanus shows up he's also a new recruit um previously coriolanus was like this is gonna suck and now he's like okay maybe i can make it through there's at least one and his reasoning for being able to make it through is because now there is a person there who understands how important he is yes well and here's a quote they're not his friend absolutely not so coriolanus says uh you know when you came in i was weighing the merits of suicide and Sejanus says, what? Now, when you're finally free from the clutches of Dean Highbottom and the evil Dr. Gall, when the girl of your dreams is in reach, when my ma is at this moment packing a box the size of a truck full of baked goods for you, my friend, your oh life has gosh. just begun. I love Sejanus's mom constantly sending the soldiers, like, baskets of pastry. Yes. Yes. They Sejanus's- talk about it so much. Me too. Sejanus's mom, ever since um, Coriolanus helped get Sejanus out of the arena, has like really is like, oh, you are definitely my son's best friend, and I love you like another son, and I'm going to feed you constantly and dote on you. And while Coriolanus does not like accepting help from anyone, he is at this point kind of like, yeah, Sejanus owes it to me because I've saved his ass so many times that I am going to take advantage of his parents. But I also, so I read, a, I went on Goodreads for this book because I'm a dummy um, <laughs> and was a shocked more people didn't like it, but also they were probably the dummies who created backlash for it. Uh, but somebody, one of the reviews was like, if I have to read one more sentence about cabbage, I'm going to lose my mind. All this book talks about is cabbage. And I was like, all this book talks about is baskets of pastry from Sejanus's mother. Yes. Like if you want to pick the, <laughs> the reoccurring food, it's that one. The cabbage comes up like once in the first scene. And then I was like, I don't think you read past the, the first scene or else you would know that the real culinary star of this, of this book is the Sejanus mom pastries. Yes. So they're, they're in 12. Um, Sejanus is still speaking uh, very treasonously about how he needs to, um, you know, he needs to find a better way to help. He does let uh, Coriolanus know that his father donated a ton of money to the school in order to have on paper officially uh, both Sejanus and Coriolanus graduate. Um, And because it was written up before the demerits and everything else and not taking into account the games, Coriolanus technically graduates with high honors. Yes. (laughs) Um, Again, relatable no lands on top. experience. <laughs> no lands on top, baby. Uh, so he is he's a little bit heartened to hear this because it means that he can apply to be an officer because you need to have a diploma to be an officer. And if you're an officer, obviously, like you make more money, you get better assignments, like you could even maybe go back to the capital. And that's kind of what he wants. And he's like, okay, well, I'm changing my life. Like before, I was going to be a diplomat. I was going to be president. 
I was going to go that way. But you know what? My father was a military hero. Maybe I'm destined to be a military hero. Maybe I'm going to become an officer and I'm going to become a Maybe war hero. Be a different type of hero. <laughs> I know I'll be a hero. The question is just what kind. Exactly. Uh, and of course, Lucy Gray is back in the districts. I'm District 12. And Coriolanus is able to meet up with her after a singing performance that she gives and uh with her with her singing her her osmond-esque family yes. that all have colorful middle names like i can't remember any of them it's like bar badger yeah. and yeah Maud <laughs> clerk carmine do we think this is an origin story for ron burgundy the <laughs> <laughs> Did he did he come from I guess that would Angerman would predate because this is a near future. So Oh yeah. Now that Lucy Gray is a descendant of Ron Burgundy. Oh, I Hell do yes. that does remind me. I do think that this in the original trilogy, there's no like official canonical confirmation that Pan Am used to be America, right? Like it's very obvious that it did, but they never say it out loud, correct? But this book does this book, yeah, but this book does. This book does it, right? say it, yes. Anyway, so, so anyway, yes. thing and family, yeah. And he he gets like stupid jealous about her ex because he finds out that the reason she threw a snake down, Billy Tope, Billy Tope, yeah, yeah, <laughs> stupid, yeah. Well, and I remember because I remember googling also to be like, is the Covey a real thing? Question mark. And it's not. Yeah, but they it's felt se- like they were maybe supposed to be coded as like if if we were not in America, they felt kind of like Romani coded almost. Exactly. Yes. And I was kind of like, is, did did we have this in America? But uh, yeah, I feel like that's the vibe that it was going for. Yeah. Because um, they keep saying like they're not district, but they're not capital, and they're not from District Twelve because they're wanderers, and they go around singing and live live uh what's the word on the road and things like that yeah and um so billy tope was someone who they had brought into their their covey covey and he had been essentially two-timing like he was technically dating lucy but then he mostly was just looking for a woman who would you know do everything for him and take care of him and who he could use and the mayor's daughter also wanted him so he was dating both of them and lucy found out and dumped him and uh when mayfair the mayor's daughter found out she told her father to stage the reaping so that lucy got reaped so that like and at at that point lucy gray was like i am i'm done with you sir you just let that happen. Uh, and he still is like, oh, why? We could be together still. And she's like, no, especially because you're still with the mayor's daughter. <laughs> you literally arranged for me to be sent to my death. And now I came home and you're like, but what if we still had a chance? Um, also, I love how a unreasonably jealous Coriolanus is thinking that there's a chance Lucy Gray might get back with the guy who literally sent her to her death. Um, after cheating on her and also i love how unreasonable again going back to his like everything's calculated everything's self-serving how unreasonably annoyed he is by all the singing the covey does like there's several times where they're like we're gonna do another one and he's like fuck's sake like it's just it's so it's so delightful how much he hates their singing but has to pretend to love it because he has to pretend to love her because he owns her 
And it is, it's <sighs> like such an interesting turn because at the beginning, when he is talking to her, like when he's in his first blush of like, attraction he tells her like oh yeah there's not a lot of music in my life it's just like your song and my grandmother playing this- except for the Gemma Pan Am yeah. my grandmother <laughs> playing this record of the the um anthem every morning and singing badly to it and a lullaby that I sort of remember my mother singing to me and then by the time he has like gone through all of these other things which have turned him further and further from like a righteous path into an even more corrupt path he's like all music is balls like every song is bad (laughs) music when music is playing it's like there's a little sound in my head that's making me pay attention to it instead of my own thoughts and i hate it (laughs) (laughs) you know it's possible maybe that's why Santino Fontana was directed to read stuff in a monotone instead of singing so that we would go on that journey with Coriolanus. Cause by the end I was also like, fuck this music. That like, is stop singing your such song. a gracious, that is such a gracious <laughs> interpretation of that. I like the guy. I want to give him some credit. Even though his reading was uh, objectively terrible. Um. So Coriolanus like starts to kind of revise his life in his head and is like, all right, well, I'll take the officer's test. I'll be an officer. But meanwhile, he is annoyed because like Sejanus is very clearly immediately planning a rebellion, like immediately, Mm -hmm. like the third day that he's there. He is 20 minutes after arriving. He unpacks a big tub of pastries and is like, great. So how do we overthrow these guys? Yes. And quote, him quote you're the one who said i could help the people in the districts if i agreed to leave the arena i believe i said you could fight for the tributes meaning you might be able to procure more humane conditions for them humane conditions they're being forced to murder each other and the tributes are from the districts too so i don't really see a distinction yeah i just meant you could you could help them die more comfortably they could die having had a drink of water that's the kind of (laughs) activism i meant you could have posted about it on your Instagram. <laughs> so he, as as time goes by in these like first few weeks that they're in District 12, uh, Coriolanus keeps finding all of this evidence that Sejanus is up to no good and like is filing it away in his head and trying to figure out the best way to discuss it with him and get him to stop because it would reflect badly on him, Coriolanus, if this person who is his supposed best friend closer than a brother were to get in big trouble because they will obviously, knowing that he's friends with Coriolanus, will pull Coriolanus into it as well. And he brings it up a couple times and Sejanus is like, you're right, you're right. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go a different route. But then finds out that he is indeed planning a rebellion with guns and things and confronts him about it. And in the midst of the confrontation, Billy Tope and uh, the, well, actually prior to this, sorry, I skipped an important plot point, which is that uh, because he hates singing and music, he really hates the Jabber Jays and especially the Mocking Jays that are around District 12. And he brings up the idea to his commander that they, that the recruits, the peacemakers should shoot them. And the commander's like, that's a great idea. And calls back to the districts, uh, to the capital, and is like, hey, I know that these birds are here because of your bird science. Is it okay if we kill them? And the capital is like, oh, we're going to come get the ones that are our property first to just to see, to do some experiments. But then you can kill as many as you want. 
Um, so he gets... Because if you'll recall from the original books, they were a failed experiment because they were supposed to be able to record audio and then be like little spy birds, but the district rebels like figured it out and wouldn't, they wouldn't talk shit around birds anymore. Yeah. Um, so... And then they became a symbol of the revolution. He starts working with a scientist from the capital who was close with Gaul to capture these birds and she still has a high opinion of him. So he starts like, initially he's afraid of her recognizing him for his role in, you know, fucking up the games at the end there. But instead she recognizes him as like a smart person and he realizes that his like betrayal and cheating has not gotten out to a larger audience. Um, So instead she starts sucking up to him thinking like, okay, well, it's good to have allies at the Capitol. He'd already written a couple letters to Gaul or at least one letter to Gaul where he basically like was continuing her training with him, talking about different things that he has noticed being in District 12 that play into her theories about like mankind and the Hunger Games and war. And while he is working on this project, Sejanus goes into detail about the rebel plot and Coriolanus turns on a jabber jay to record his confession. Mm-hmm. And then once again, like, cause that's the other interesting. And he's like, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to do anything with it, but just like, maybe just, you know, it's just nice to have just in case. Like he's very, he's very coy about, I just, I just, you know, just in case, like, what the fuck do you think you're going to do with it, sir? You're not fooling anyone, including yourself. Yeah, and it's it is like just fascinating because there's all of these moments like when he puts Lucy Gray's handkerchief in the snake pit is another one where he his brain has immediately made a decision and decided what it's going to do going to do and how it's going to go forward. And then he kind of argues with himself over it. Like with the Jabberjay, he's like, "Well, probably probably no one will notice and it's not going to go anywhere. But if it does go somewhere, you know, I like the, the there's nothing on it that will implicate me. It'll just make Sejanus look bad. But he is my friend, and they probably will put him in jail for this treason. But like, what are the odds that anyone's even going to listen to it? Like, basically none. So it's fine. And of course, they end up listening to the Jabberjay. Sejanus is hung for treason, but not before. It's like he's trying to. It's, sorry, it's like he's trying to like talk himself out of his own culpability. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. though he like he knows he knows the act he knows what's going to happen, but he's giving himself an out so that in his own mind he can he, when it does happen eventually he can be like, well, I had no idea that was going to happen. Yeah, and so before before Coriolanus uh, before Sejanus is caught, yeah. um, he and Coriolanus, he baby angel. Uh, Coriolanus follows him out of the the hob, which is where the the singing is, like it's like the club in town, and sees him like making this deal with the rebel leader and Mayfair, the mayor's daughter, and Billy Tope come in and threaten to squeal. And Lucy Gray is there too. Yes, and they they threaten to squeal though the two of them about this rebel plot. So. Um, Coriolanus and one of the other guys there shoot the two of them and then immediately he sends Lucy Gray back to stage and says like get on stage immediately get as many of the Covey on stage as you can stay on stage all night that's your alibi and they like pull the murdered bodies into the garage and then they all disperse 
And he, so he, Coriolanus. But the is, weapons disappear. Yes. The weapons they use to kill him with. Is it, I don't remember who grabs him. Somebody grabs Spruce, Spruce. or Sejanus or somebody. Yeah. The guy's name is Spruce, which is so fucking stupid. I love it. Uh, so, <laughs> like we're going back to the District 9 where they're all like Katniss and Primrose and Spruce and and Tulips and and Cat, whatever. I don't know. It's so dumb. I love it. Yes. Uh, and so Spruce disappears with the weapons and Coriolanus is like positive that he is going to be implicated in the murder. Even as rumors start because flying. the weapons have his DNA on them. That's the big thing is he's like, because the weapons are missing and they definitely have my DNA on them and they're going to use them to track, track back to the murder. Yeah. And he's obsessed with the fact that they're going to have his DNA. Yes, because the, the Dean used his DNA on a napkin to, is as one of the things that expelled him from school. So he's yes. like, he's stuck on this now. Um, and, you know, uh, Sejanus gets called to the commander and it turns out that it's because of the Jabberjay incident. It is not because of the murders. They don't think they have anything to do with the murders. And when the commander calls him into his office afterwards, he's like, great, they figured it out. And it's just the commander thanking him for... Uh, checking in with him to make sure that like everything is okay. Thanking him for like he's thanking him for turning in Sejanus. Yeah, right? with the then mm-hmm. he's like, I know that must have been hard for you because you guys are such good friends. And Coralie like sits there for a minute. And he's like, better than friends. He was like my brother. And you're like, you little fucker. It is. It is like, and it. So he's like, great. It's okay. Ice cold. It's so cold. So he's like, I dodged that bullet, but still he thinks that once they find the guns, he will be in trouble Sejan- again. Well, he dodges that bullet and Sejanus gets gets murdered. Yep, Sejanus is hung. It's so sad. Yeah. My poor sweet baby child. And then he gets called into the commander's office again. And he thinks, oh, like this time they really have me. And it was just a congratulation from the commander because he has not only passed the officer's test, he's the youngest person to ever pass the officer's test. And that he, the next day, is going to be shipped off to do his officer training. Yeah, in District 2, the fancy district. Yeah, so he's like, okay, but they're going to find this gun and I'll be convicted of murder so I can't go live my life as an officer. And Lucy is like, I'm going to run away. And Coriolanus is like, okay, well, I'm going to go with you. So they plan this running away that they're going to do. Even though he'd really rather, like, he'd really rather be an officer, but he pretends like he's like, yeah, I also want to get away from all this and get away from from the corruption of the capital and run into the middle of nowhere and have no life and no prospects and nobody I can rule over. Um, and she's like, yeah, let's do that. So they're they're doing the same thing, but for very different reasons. Yes. And his is only because he thinks he has no other, he has no future left in the capital because they're going to catch him. Yes. And then in the midst of their running away, he discovers that Spruce had stashed the guns at a house that he and Lucy Gray. Kate. Kate. Yes. Can I please take this from here? Go for it. When I tell you I lost my goddamn mind. Go for it. I was at a gas station listening to the audio book, standing at the gas pump. And I actually out out loud at one point said, he's going to fucking kill her. I could not believe this. Okay. And I was like, there's no, and then there was, okay. So him and Lucy go to the lake where they hung out before. And he very grumpily spent a day at the lake where he was upset because he was a good sport and nobody told him what a good sport he was. She's like, let's go here one more time. He's like, cool. 
they go to this little cabin in the lake and it's raining. And Lucy's like, I'm going to go harvest some catness from the lake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> see what I did there. Um, he's like, cool, go get us some food. And he, I love how much he hates being outdoors and how much he hates being poor. And he's thinking all the time, he's like, if this is what life is going to be like, this is going to suck. Like, there's no, there's, it's raining and it's wet and it's cold. And we have to make our own fire and I hate it. Um, and then she shuts the cabin door and behind the cabin door, he sees that somebody, probably Spruce, stashed the gun that was used to kill Mayfair and uh, Billy Tope. And he's like, oh my God, this is the gun that has my DNA on it. And any normal person trying to uh, paint themselves innocent of a crime would be like, great, I can just get rid of this and it's fine. And instead, Coriolanus descends into this loop of insane paranoia where he's like, I can get rid of this. It's fine. But Lucy Gray knows that she was there. Like she saw me kill kill Mayfair and Billy Tope. Lucy Gray is going to turn me in. And even if she doesn't turn me in, she's going to hold this over me for the rest of my life. I can't let that happen. She's probably she's probably telling them right now. And he goes out into the forest and like fucking hunts her down. Like he's walking through the forest with a machine gun, again, doing that thing where he's like, I'm not going to kill her. I'm not going to kill her, but like, she's probably going to kill me. So I better just have a gun just in case. But I'm like, not going to kill her. But if I fire into the trees and this was the guy at the part, I was like, oh my God, he's going to fucking kill her. There's no way. There's no way Suzanne Collins would do that in her young adult novel. And he fucking kills well we don't know if he kills her but he's like shooting wildly into the trees he like hears her and he's like calling her he's like lucy gray lucy it's so fucking diabolical and so he shoots into the trees and then he can't find her and so he gets rid of the weapons and then he just leaves and goes back to district 12 and fucking leaves her there and maybe she's dead but he doesn't know i lost my mind my my job was on the floor. I read a, t- I, you both do too. I read a ton of books. It is hard to surprise me. It is hard to actually like go there with me. And this one knocked me over. He fucking kills her. I couldn't believe it. It was she's wild. She's not a punch killer. He's not a what? Suzanne Collins is not a punch puller. Yeah. Punch puller. Punch okay. And Got it. Yes. This was like, I know, I thought you said a punch killer. And I was like, is that a reference? Anyways. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, it's sort of like, she's not a, she's not a punch puller, but everything else, I think in all the Katniss stuff, it's like, you get it. Like, you don't expect her to do it, but she does it. And then you're like, I get like when she kills the, when she kills Julian Moore at the end of the third one, you're like, ah, oh, I didn't expect that, but I understand it. And this mm-hmm. one, you're just like, but are you real? This, oh my God. I lost my fucking mind at this part. I was so just enwrapped by this. It was fucking wild. It was, I could, wild. I could not believe that was the turn that it was taking. It, you know, wild. you expect. And, you see, and then you look back at it and you're like, of course, this is where it ends. Like, of course, this is the inevitable end to it. But you never see it. it it's that it's the, the brilliance of a plot twist is when it feels both surprising and inevitable which yes. is exactly what this was yes because you know i'm sitting here oh, reading it he finds genius he finds the guns and i'm thinking okay they're gonna get into a fight where he's like i can yeah. go, i can go to officer school now and it'll be fine we'll be fine i'll protect I you thought he was gonna turn her in i thought he was gonna go back and be like here's lucy gray in the woods you better go fucking get her and then do the thing where he's like Ah, I didn't actually, I told him where she was, but I didn't know there was bad things were going to happen. Like, I thought that's what was going to happen. I didn't think he was going to go fucking shooting wildly into the woods where he knows she's standing because he's terrified she's going to tell them about the guns. I couldn't believe it. It is, it is fucking insane. 
And then, so then he, he does go back and he like, just like acts like nothing happened, goes back because this was happening so early in the morning. And the, his commander had said like, oh, like take the day to like say goodbye to your friends in town and like pack your stuff up. So it's not weird that he just like saunters back into the base, like in the evening, he packs all his shit up. He goes and when he, he goes like that, he gets on the transport and it's going to drop him off at two, but instead it drops him off at the district and he is sent to Gaul, who's like at the Capitol, at the Capitol. And he's sent to Gaul, who's like, yeah, like, what, do you really think I was going to put like the smartest kid I ever met who I've been mentoring this entire time as a fucking peacekeeper in District 12? You're not that stupid. Like, yeah, I'm paying. She's like, I just needed you. I just needed you to understand that humanity is fundamentally evil and violent. He calls she calls it so cold. She calls it his summer vacation. Mm -hmm. And She's like, yeah, like you're going to university. Like, don't worry about it. It's great. I just you're needed gonna- to make sure I had totally destroyed any chance you had of maybe thinking there was good in people. Yes. Whereas Lucy's whole thing, right? Like she tells Coriolanus at one point, she's like, I, I believe that fundamentally at their core, people are good. And then he like fucking flies in the face of that and then goes back to Gaul, who's like, ding, ding, ding. You were right. People are fucked. Yes. Uh, so she sends him to university and then we get a little bit of a flash forward we find out that the reason that Highbottom hates him so much is because he and Coriolanus's dad were best friends. And when they were in university, they were in a class with Gaul and they were given an assignment to come up with like the, the most cruel, torturous way to punish someone. And while he was very drunk, he came up with the idea for the Hunger Games and Coriolanus's father wrote it up as an actual paper and submitted it on both their behalf. And then once the war and, was and nobody dropped this one in a snake in a snake Mm-mm. snakes that can smell lies. <laughs> yes. And then Coriolanus's father died during the war. And after the war, Gaul was like, "Well, we're going to use this brilliant idea that I had from a student called uh, Cases Highbottom or whatever the hell his name is uh, to do these Hunger Games." And he is the one who came up with it, and he's the inventor of these games. And the entire time, High Bottom was like, "No, like it was." I came up with it as a joke because it was too cruel that anyone would ever do it. And now it's done all the time, so that's why I'm fucking drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then Coriolanus is like in the office with him, and he's like, "I'm really sorry to hear that. Here's the rest of the stuff I because they're only allowed to have this tiny little box of stuff uh, with the the." when they're peacekeepers and so he like has the box of stuff that was Sejanus's and he purposely dangles this bottle of morphine or it's not morphine whatever their their version of morphling from morphling thank you I just read the new Cassandra Clare book and she also has a fake morphine in it that sounds like that and I couldn't remember which was which um but so he like dangles it in front of uh Dean Highbottom and he's like oh better get rid of this and like drops it in the trash can and then walks away and Dean, knowing Dean Highbottom is going to reach into the trash can, pull it out and use it because he's an addict and he has laced it with rat poison and snow fucking lands on top. Is fucking uh, this whole podcast wild. podcast just be me heavy breathing into the microphone. <laughs> that like, that like, is stunning. That bit with the morphine, morphling, whatever, is the last thing that happens in the book. And before that, like, we're already – like, he did not need to do that because at this point, 
he has he's got everything. He's been he's got parents because Sejanus's parents are like, "You're our son now. Here's all your money and clothes, and you're our new Sejanus." And he's like, "Guess I'm new Sejanus." And his family is like, "We now have a house because of the because of Sejanus's family." And they're and everything's coming up snow, baby. Yeah, he's he got like, everything you wanted and more. He's in. The, he's not only in university, but everyone respects him because of his time as a peacekeeper. Like he's Gaul's like pet pupil who already is working. He has a quote unquote internship where he's working with the game makers already in like his first semester of university. Like everyone respects him. Everyone adores him. He's looked at he's as a hero. Super hot. Everybody wants to date him. And he like, and that is his, like his last fucking choice as in the book is that he goes and he poisons fucking high bottom and just like leaves and yeah. goes back to and, his and life. in like a smart in a smart way yeah but like in a clever way that probably won't be checked back to him right and his father ruined high bottom's life and caused him to fall into this addiction because of the, the guilt of the hunger games and mm-hmm. then Coriolanus was like better fucking use that to make to to kill him it's oh it's incredible chilling i i out loud again listening to audiobook in my car i knew that was going to be the last line and i said it aloud with santino fontana snow lands on top and then i screamed it does um uh, one other thing snow's grandma grows roses and they're really important to her and that's foreshadowing first snow's thing with roses and the other books Oh, yeah. Roses. And he gives Lucy Gray a rose when she shows up at uh, the, on the train, and she's like, "What does my mentor do other than bring me roses?" And he's like, yeah. I, "I'm, I'm fall in love with you and eventually murder you in a forest." He doesn't say, yeah. that, but you know what I mean. Basically, basically, it's implied. Yes. So yeah, we're we are. This is when we normally would do dramatic readings. We're going to skip them because we talked too much about how great this book is. But you know what? Trust us. Go read this book. Maybe it sounds like don't do the audiobook, but unless you're really into uh, chanted folk songs, yes, a tonally chanted folk songs, which maybe you are. Um, readers' advisory will definitely post more on our website, which is worstbestsellers.com. Um, I wanted. Shout out Scythe by Neil Schusterman, which I have done before and I'll do it again. We did, in fact, read that book for this podcast. I know. <laughs> That's I, what I mean. Reader's, reader's Advisory is the what to read instead, right? Yeah. Or in addition to. So, yeah, I was going to say. So I, I don't have it instead because I think people should read this. But can I shout out very quickly? Um, oh, God, I have to remember the author's name. Um, it, the book is called Chain Gang All Stars. Oh um, yes, I've heard that's great. Is Nana Nana Kwame Ajia Brenya. I hope I said that right, and I don't think I did. Um, it is fantastic. It's a it's on the National Book Award shortlist this year, so I'm happy to see it getting some love that it deserves. It is near future dystopian where uh, prisoners in the American penal system are able to get a shorter sentence by fighting each other to death. It's told in this like ensemble of voices where you hear from all these different people, but the sort of two main characters are the reigning champion who's one more fight away from getting out. And then the sort of like new upstart hotshot and they're in love with each other. And it is so good. It is such a good story. It's a love story. It has these like really intense, grisly, visceral action sequences while also being this like really 
smart, sharp commentary on for-profit prisons. It's sort of the like, I think it's a more literal version of that. The Hunger Games is a little more abstract in the terms of just like condemning the way we we uh, uh, monetize violence and the way we normalize to it and things like that. And this one I feel like is more, it's an adult book. It's more sort of pointed and on the nose and the things that it's that it's sort of condemning and satirizing, but it is so good. And I just cannot recommend it enough. One of my favorite books of the year. All right. Uh, we'll have more up on our website, uh, worstbestsellers.com. But I do believe now would be a good time for us to move on to our favorite game, The Rock, Paper, Snicked, where I will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he was in this book. And Renata will say who Wolverine will be if he's in this book. And uh, Mackenzie will choose one of them or choose paper, which is to leave the book as it is. And to be honest, I love this book so much. It was very hard to put the rock in. Um, so is your is your suggestion for where to put the rock in is he is he is with us reading the book and really enjoys it and takes it to his book club and is like, this is a fucking great book. Oh no, that would be a great idea though. No, I was gonna I was gonna put him in as another teacher of Coriolanus's at the Academy who had a more uh, I guess, sunny outlook on humanity to add just like a little bit of dissent from the uh, the staff at the Academy who's just like, oh, no, like, which I guess Highbottom is kind of that figure, although we don't really get it directly. Uh, but in my version, The Rock would be there who would be, you know, kind of against the games, but kind of has to do it to, doesn't want to tow party lines and... Uh, encourages Coriolanus to think for himself, which he does. And then he decides that the way that he is thinking for himself is, of course, to follow in Gaul's footsteps and not the rocks. So the majority of the book doesn't actually change very much. There's just a few more scenes in it and that the rocks in. If Wolverine were in this book, he wouldn't be in this book. He'd be in the Hunger Games and he would just be Hamish's drinking buddy. And I think that would Simple, be fun for effective. them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Both of these suggestions are spectacular. However, as I have made it clear that this book is perfect and I have no notes for it, including pastry baskets and uh, <laughs> uh, meatloaf sandwiches and general silliness. Uh, and the I'm name Coriolanus. And the name Coriolanus. Uh, all of that aside, it's perfect. And I don't feel like either The Rock nor Wolverine is needed to improve this already perfect book. That's fair. Yeah. Very sorry, I, guys. They were good suggestions, but you just can't improve on perfection. I get it. I get it. Um, speaking of perfection, it's time for Duarte's Corner, or my cat Duarte shares his opinions on the book. So true. Duarte, you're right. There is one little failing of this book, which is um, that there's no cats in it and of course the original trilogy was also great because it did have star cat buttercup and but you know like what the main the, character yeah the main character buttercup but you know what um Coriolanus does talk about how during the war like rabies was wild because people couldn't afford to take their pets to the vet and you know I just think maybe it's for the best if Coriolanus wasn't allowed to interact with any cats you know what I mean yeah, I really, I really do feel like this one is cats dodging a bullet by not being included in this setting. Uh, so yeah, like I, I think that the the 
addition of cats in later books just goes to show how far cats have come in the Hunger Games universe in the, you know, 64 years or whatever between this time and the time of the original Hunger Games trilogy. So true. Y'all, I gotta be honest. All I heard, all I heard in Duarte's comment was Snowlands on top. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he, you know, he does love that song too. Um, he he loves to sing the song of his people, <laughs> Snowlands on Top by Beyonce. <laughs> um, uh, also, Georgia, you are right to point out a uh, cat, cat lady, queen tigress has such a beautiful origin story here. Oh, and, right. You know, she's not really at her full cat powers yet, but we know where she's going. <laughs> All right, Georgia, thank you so much for reading this book um, with us. I'm sorry that you ha- you don't have any songbirds or snakes to interact with because I think you'd have fun with that but you know uh do any humans have any closing thoughts um this read book- this book yeah this book slaps you should read it if like me you were kind of like oh I don't need to read that I got enough it is it is worth it, it is worth making time in your reading schedule for it it's very good <laughs> I am so happy my heart has grown three sizes if you guys do like a crowd crowdfunding kickstart or something for the podcast maybe one of your stretch goals could be the three of us get matching tattoos that say snowlands on top (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) only when they have evolved um like the flash tattoo technology they have in the the main hunger games trilogy and we can have like a moving tattoo or something um (laughs) or singing oh my god Anyway, yeah, the this- song is San- Santino Fontana monotone, uh, monotone reading over and over again. Stay on the sunny side, the sunny side <laughs> of the street. <laughs> um, no, my tattoo will sing "Snow Ends on Top" to the tune of "Love on Top" by Beyonce. Oh, perfect. I've been very close. <laughs> perfect. Um, perfect. Yeah, I'm so glad you two like this book as much as I did. I think this book whips ass. This was- um, this was a wonderful respite after the insanity of 19th century Ehrenburg erotica and the total madness that was the wig, the bitch, and the meltdown, Mr. J's America's Next Top Model fan fiction. And I am <laughs> so appreciative that you finally threw me a bone and yes. gave me a good book. We threw you a, a whole cabbage. Uh, <laughs> and a basket of pastries. Yeah, a whole box mm. filled with Ma's pastries. Mm. God bless Ma. <laughs> All right. If if you all want to come on and talk to us and throw us a cabbage or pastry, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Worst Bestseller Spelled Normally. We're on, uh, and also Blue Sky Worst Bestsellers at bluesky.social.whatever. I don't know. We're on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S because the S was the first letter to die in the Hunger Games. Very sad. Shoot the cannon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you find pod, pod wherever you find podcasts these days. Uh, and if you do find us there, please take a moment to rate and review. When you rate and review, it moves us up on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. If you don't rate and review, we will be forced to throw uh, an essay into a pit of snakes. Will it be an essay you have touched? There's only one way that you'll be able to find out, and. Uh, good luck with that. 
We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Patreon is a service where you pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to do things like keep our website up and running and keep our equipment updated. And in exchange... Uh, there's all sorts of perks for you, like a monthly mini episode where we talk about what we've been into this month and postcards and stickers in the mail and all sorts of other things. We also have merch available at worst that you can find by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on merch, where you'll find several designs from our podcast that you can wear on your body. And uh, finally, we do have a Discord server, which also is linked from worstbestsellers.com, where you can chat with other fans of the show about TV and movies and episodes and books you're reading and how cute your cats are and whatever else crosses your minds. Cats are so cute. Uh, If you want to see mine, you can find me on social media at Renata Snacks. And if you are looking for me on social media, I am at 14 across on Instagram and Blue Sky. And Mackenzie, where can people find you aside from in their favorite local indie bookstore on the shelves under <laughs> Lee? I was going to say wherever fine books are sold. Um, <laughs> yes. I am on exactly one social media, which is Instagram. And you can find me at the Mackenzie Lee. Yeah, and real quick, let's just shout out because Mackenzie, your your intro is too modest. If you don't know, Mackenzie has written the the Gentleman's Guide to Virtue and Vice, or is it Vice and Virtue? I was getting mixed up. It is Vice and Virtue, but uh, feel free to invert. You know, it'll come up either way if you search it. SEO I was going to say, that. no matter what you Google, it's either that or I think it's a Panic at the Disco album called Vice. And <laughs> <laughs> Get You'll one find or the it. other, and honestly, there's no no bad scenario there. Yeah, you'll find you'll find the whole Montague trilogy. You'll find your your fun Marvel books, your fun and emotional Marvel books. Tbh, um, you'll you'll find Mackenzie Lee. Find find her, buy her books. Yes, read them. They're good. So ominous sounding. Find her. Find her. Bring me the head of Mackenzie Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mackenzie, thank you for joining us and thank you for appreciating how good this book is. Thank you for having me, my friends. Always a pleasure. And we'll be back in two weeks with uh, The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger, which was uh, chosen for us by our Patreon patrons. Thank you? (laughs) Question mark? Thank you, question mark. Thank you sincerely for being a patron. Thank you, question mark, for this book. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye! 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 Bye!